welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Hello and welcome to another episode of People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Dominic Shikitano, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. International environmental law is often characterized as fragmented and heterogeneous. There is currently no single overarching framework that outlines a set of rules and criteria of general application in an international environmental law. In today's episode, we explore the recent push for a set of globally recognized principles on environmental law called the Global Pact for the Environment under the United Nations. Today, we're joined by Nicholas A. Robinson and Maria Antonia Tigre to discuss the agreement's history, present status, and future outlook, as well as its broader implications for international environmental law. Nicholas A. Robinson is the University Professor for the Environment and Curlin Professor of Environmental Law Emeritus at the Elizabeth Hobbs School of Law at Pace University, which he founded in 1978. He has developed environmental law since 1969, when he was named to the Legal Advisory Committee of the President's Council on Environmental Quality. He has practiced environmental law in law firms for municipalities and as a general counsel of the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. Nick is working towards establishing a global pact for the environment through the International Council of Environmental Law. Also joining us today is Maria Antonia Tigre. Maria is the Director of Latin America for the Global Network for the Study of Human Rights and the Environment, or GNHRE. Through GNHRE, she has increasingly focused her efforts on human rights-based climate litigation in Latin America. She is currently finishing her SJD in International Environmental Law at the Elizabeth Haub School of Law at Pace University. Her research focuses on the current state of global environmental crises and the development of potential new legal solutions through philosophical, religious, and legal arguments. Maria's book, Gaps in International Environmental Law, Toward a Global Pact for the Environment was published in January 2020 with ELI Press. I want to begin by thanking you both for coming on today to discuss the Global Pact and Maria, your book, which I understand is closely related to the advancement of the pact itself. It's great to be with you, Dominic. Yeah, thank you very much, Dominic. It's a pleasure to be here and thank ELI for uh, publishing the book and for our hosting this webinar as well. So before we get into the details of the pact itself, I'd like to just ask you both to tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the agreement. Well, my involvement with the pact uh, began before it existed. Uh, I was working on promoting the general principles of international environmental law through uh, the World Commission on Environmental Law of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And we'd worked on uh, uh, getting the General Assembly to agree to the World Charter for Nature, which it adopted uh, some years before. Uh, and we'd been promoting these principles in many, many ways, but when the Paris Agreement in 2015 on climate uh, came up short, it really didn't have a strong commitment by states to fight climate change uh, aggressively or robustly. Uh, a number of individuals said we need to coalesce, uh, have the nations coalesce around a, a set of agreed principles that will cause us to protect the earth rather than defer and, and continue to degrade the global environment. 
Uh, and that led a group of lawyers in uh, a think tank in Paris, the Club du Juriste, uh, to uh, come up with a proposal for a global pact for the environment. Uh, quite independently, they, they came to reach out to my work uh, through IUCN. Uh, and I uh, was very happy to begin collaborating with uh, the, the, the Club of Jurists, if you will, the Club de Juristes, uh, in the drafting of the original uh, text for the Global Pact, uh, which went through several iterations and then uh, was uh, a final drafting meeting in, in Paris. Uh, the pact was endorsed and supported by the former foreign minister of France, uh, Laurent Fabius, who had chaired the negotiations for the Paris Agreement on Climate. And I think he was very uh, concerned that nations needed to be motivated to do more for the uh, climate change uh, problem. Uh, so he, he was active in the negotiation of the pact and led the final round of negotiations, which took place uh, uh, in the Constitutional Court uh, of, of Paris. Uh, and I was invited to that session and participated in the final rounds. And then uh, it was uh, taken on the next day, actually, by uh, Emmanuel Macron, the newly elected president of France, uh, who pledged to take the negotiated text as a draft to the UN General Assembly. So I was I was there really uh, in the gestation period, and then uh, as the text got worked on, uh, and then subsequently I've been involved in the in the consultations and negotiations among nations and in the General Assembly, uh, and in civil society and among academics and and scholars to promote the pact. Um, Maria, could you talk a bit about how um, you got involved with the pact through your book? Sure. Uh, so my involvement with the PAC came shortly after um, this initial process that Nick mentioned. I was just beginning uh, the the sort of the the idea for my for my thesis for my SJD thesis, and Nick is my supervisor, uh, and he suggested that I focus on the Global Pact for the Environment as the main. Um, is the main focus of my thesis since it would uh, it would likely develop uh, over the next couple of years. So I started uh, researching the the idea and uh, sort of the the history before uh, all of the, all of that happening happened and um, and eventually the a part of my thesis became the the book that ELI published. Uh, so my my involvement was really through um, uh, just after the launch through all of the the negotiations up to well up to now but the book covers up until uh, the beginning uh, well the end of last year uh, and I was I also helped promote the the idea of the global pact and uh, gather some academics and, and scholars to to discuss this moving moving forward what what the best alternatives would be. Thank you both for providing that context. So Nick, you talk a little bit about how um, kind of a key impetus for the pact is the shortcoming of past environmental agreements, specifically international environmental agreements. And so I guess I'd like to talk a bit about some of the range of existing gaps in principles of international environmental law. 
and, and the regulatory regimes that carry it out. Um, Maria, what do you see as some important examples of the major gaps that the pact intends to fill? The idea of, of the pact in general is to address this the, the major gap of this lack of cohesiveness uh, in a connected framework of international environmental law, especially as it relates to principles. So the Global Pact would fill this, this gap by establishing building blocks for international environmental law. It would address inconsistencies between law, which are now very common. It would provide guidance in areas where there is still no international law like for example, in the area of plastics in marine environment, and ensure that uh, principles are legally binding. Since uh, a lot of the existing principles right now, there's a lot of discussion on whether it constitutes uh, soft law or not. Uh, and moving forward, they would assist in their interpretation as well. So even if uh, what eventually is adopted is not legally binding documents. Principles can have a normative effect and carry normative weight in state and non-state practices. Uh, and moving forward as well, there will be commentaries and model laws that can assist with implementation and incorporation of the principles into domestic law. So to use an example of how that, uh, of one significant gap that the Global Pact would cover is the right to a healthy environment, which is very widespread and adopted in the constitutions of many countries, but it's still not officially recognized at the international level. So the Global Pact could offer a new avenue for environmental protection through this recognition of the right to a healthy environment, uh, through adjudication by national and international courts and tribunals. And an example of this is how in uh, the Americas through the Inter-American Court, we just sort of it came through a similar process at the regional level. Um, the Inter-American Court recognized the right to a healthy environment through an advisory opinion in 2017, and earlier this year recognized uh, in the first contentious case. So something similar could happen at the international level. So the, the codification of the right to a healthy environment would contribute to the justiciability of environmental principles, raise awareness of and reinforce the understanding that human rights norms require the protection of the environment. Um, and the environmental protection depends on this exercise of human rights. So it, it would really reinforce this um, link between human rights and, and the environment. And I think what's even more important, given the context that we are in right now with COVID-19, is that it would place greater attention on vulnerable populations as well. So um, indigenous peoples, uh, environmental migrants and refugees, which are being very much um, affected, well, have been affected for a while, but especially now with COVID-19, the right, the, this recognition of a right to a healthy environment would help in those situations as well. Uh, and I think the last gap that it would cover is that it includes uh, innovative principles that could help achieve the sustainable development goals, including the principle of resilience, uh, effective and fair implementation of norms, which is very much an issue in several countries, uh, including in, in Latin America as a whole, the principle of non-regression and environmental protection during armed conflicts, for example.
Thank you, Maria, for, um, for providing some examples um, and also for touching on human rights concerns. That's something I definitely want to come back to later. Um, in addition to filling gaps with more sort of internationally cohesive principles on environmental law, um, the pact also kind of posits a few new categories of environment-related instruments in areas like trade, uh, investment, intellectual property, and as you mentioned, human rights. Nick, uh, what kind of instruments does the pact propose, and could you maybe provide some examples of these? Well, thanks very much, Dominic. Uh, the pact is really uh, a set of overarching principles, as Maria described. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons these principles are needed is to motivate the acceptance of new international uh, negotiations and uh, uh, agreements where we have not yet had them. Uh, for a long time, back in the 1940s, in fact, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade had an Article 20, which is still international law, that says states can take measures to protect the environment with phytosanitary uh, restrictions uh, on trade, which are not deemed to be uh, a violation of free trade uh, norms. Uh, a good example would be trying to keep uh, COVID-19 from spreading from country to country now. In 2001, uh, the Doha round of uh, international trade agreements tried to come up with a, a modernization of this uh, 1948 rule, Article 20. Uh, and there had been a number of disputes about how much environmental protection would be allowed in any one country if it in interfered with otherwise free trade. Uh, now, we've had no agreement whatsoever. The Doha round failed. The international uh, work uh, uh, to reconcile trade and environment has gone nowhere. So it's a little bit like what Laurent Fabius found out with the failure to get uh, uh, climate change agreements. If we don't have underlying fundamental agreements uh, on the basic principles of global protection, then we can't derive the more specific rules for uh, international trade. Uh, it's, it's, it's been easier for some to derive those rules for human rights because under the human rights uh, conventions, the covenants, uh, courts and, and international bodies have determined there is a human right to water, for instance. Uh, well, that's an environmental right also, uh, but they were able to derive it from the basic principles of human rights law. Now, we don't have basic principles yet for all of environmental law, uh, and we need to put those in place. So principles one and principles two of the Global Pact basically establish the international uh, uh, right to the environment and the international duty of all actors, state actors and, and, and non-state actors, companies and so on, uh, to protect the environment. Uh, and the rest of the norms uh, basically guide how those negotiations to fill the gaps would uh, uh, proceed. Now, environmental laws is no different than any other part of international law. International law itself is full of gaps. Uh, it has all of the problems that your opening observation about international environmental law have. 
So environmental law is not uniquely different than uh, the problems that sovereign states have learning how to cooperate with each other. And what is different about the global pact and about international environmental law generally is that it is informed by the environmental sciences. So the uh, study of uh, biodiversity, the study of the hydrologic cycle, uh, atmosphere, the oceans, all of the scientific research about the planet Earth tells us what a healthy Earth uh, more or less might look like how these systems work before we interfere with them with too much human uh, uh, disruption. And so environmental law has been trying to harmonize human behavior and, and, and reconcile it with what the environmental sciences tell us about the earth. And by harmonizing human conduct uh, with the laws of nature, we, we think we can come up with a, an integrated approach. Last year, the UN Environment Program released the Global Environmental Outlook, uh, the GEO number six, which basically shows that environmental law is failing all around the world. Uh, the environmental degradation trends uh, are getting worse in every country. There's no exception. Uh, and therefore, there's some urgency in coming up with this framework of basic principles that will guide us uh, in two ways. First, it will tell us how to harmonize the existing agreements. Uh, we have agreements on the law of the sea. We're now negotiating a supplement of the uh, protection of the marine uh, biodiversity area beyond national jurisdiction called BB&J. And, and those negotiations have to be guided by a common set of frameworks. And the law of the sea treaty says quite clearly all states have a duty to protect the oceans. So there's a fundamental norm there, which they're implementing. Uh, but we don't have that yet for the uh, uh, climate, for instance. Uh, the Paris Agreement is, is still very weak, uh, and some countries like the US are withdrawing from it. So we've got to come up with a, uh, a set of principles that motivate us to harmonize our international agreements. But secondly, it takes about 15 years to negotiate a new treaty. So new international agreements take longer to develop than, as we see with plastics, the problem of uh, marine plastic pollution or, or uh, now it's terrestrial plastic pollution also. So if we had general principles like the duty to protect the environment, uh, we could address and apply those principles to things like plastics quickly rather than waiting to come up with an entirely new uh, uh, negotiated framework for trade or manufacturing of plastic substances. Now, the, the, the Global Pact for the Environment then uh, uh, doesn't fill the gaps, but it provides a juridical and normative framework uh, to guide behavior before we can get around to filling the gaps uh, with hard law, with clear treaties. Thank you, Nick. It sounds to me like establishing um, instruments for things like trade um, kind of pre-requires the existence of underlying normative principles, which I suppose is the role of the pact. Um, Maria, your book is the Travaux Preparatoire. Am I saying that right? I, want, I, I will go back and say that again. <laughs> Travaux Preparatoires. Okay. Um, preparatoire. Preparatoire. Travaux Preparatoire. 
Maria, um, so your book is the travel preparatoire um, or preparatory work of the potential agreement that's currently um, under debate at the United Nations. How is your book intended and more or less designed to facilitate the development of the official pact? So the book uh, goes over the entire process in which the Global Pact was drafted and how it eventually was presented at the United Nations. It's divided into phases to facilitate the understanding of this process. The first phase relates to the genesis, uh, which Nick already mentioned about how it began at the Club de Juristes, how the experts would, were gathered. Uh, it includes the, it, it explains the rounds of consultations that these experts went through, through questionnaires, uh, and eventually the physical meeting in Paris and the launch of that first draft. The second phase relates to when uh, President Macron of France presented this idea to the General Assembly. And there was a lot of pushback from several countries which didn't really think that this was the best idea moving forward. There were some political issues. So the General Assembly eventually decided to take a step back and adopt a resolution in 2018 calling for sort of an investigation by the Secretary General of the current state of international environmental law and the gaps observed. So it was really um, a step back to see where we were at and it was the first uh, report uh, done at this level by the Secretary General when it really uh, addressed uh, international environmental law in general. So the, the third phase, it's really how this resolution was fulfilled through the work first of, of the Secretary General by publishing this report and then through a working group which uh, met subsequently. So the report by the Secretary General, General was actually much broader than uh, what the drafters of the Global Pact envisioned. It included not only gaps related to principles but also related to regulatory regimes, to environment-related instruments, to, through uh, governance structures, implementation, and effectiveness of international environmental law. So it really broadened sort of the, the set of questions that could be debated uh, by the working group moving forward that could be addressed in an eventual instrument adopted. The fourth phase uh, relates to the, to the work of the working group, which met through sessions uh, in Nairobi uh, and this unfolded in the first semester of 2019 and eventually led to recommendations that were uh, submitted to the General Assembly. And something that is unique about this book and could really help negotiate negotiations moving forward is that uh, it analyzes all of the substantive issues discussed, including the different perspectives from countries in each of those issues, sort of the major players and uh, what the what their opinions were on, on a series of those issues that the Secretary General had identified, and eventually how the recommendations came about. And it also includes a geopolitical analysis on whether countries favored an in, a new instrument or not, regardless of whether a new instrument is binding or non-binding, or whether it includes whether it addresses only principles or not, and I think this could be very helpful to negotiations moving forward. The, 
the fifth phase of this development that it's, that's included in the book is how the negotiations returned to the General Assembly in New York, which eventually adopted a resolution calling uh, for a new declaration to be adopted in 2022. So that's sort of where we're at right now. Um, and there's also uh, something else that's pretty unique about the book since it was, it was published with the International Council of Environmental Law. So there were, uh, are called ISIL. So there are documents that ISIL submitted throughout this process, uh, especially during the negotiations in Nairobi, uh, and specific commentaries about all of the documents that, uh, all of the resolutions and the reports that were adopted. So all of these documents were included in the book as well, and these are very helpful in terms of, uh, of understanding how this process unfolded and where we could uh, lead to moving forward. Thank you, Maria. Um, so you kind of touched on this a bit, but, but what role do you expect that your book is going to play as the agreement unfolds um, you know, with the working group and diplomats? I think the book is really an essential guide for negotiators uh, who are who change all the time and are not uh, always the same ones who were in Nairobi or who began in New York uh, negotiating and discussing this these issues, and also for scholars studying this process, which also I think will be uh, an essential work. Uh, of, of scholarship in the future to understand and to think about critically how international environmental law should develop, especially as we see more and more issues uh, on, in, in these multiple environmental crises that we are facing. So I think um, understanding the rationale of each decision taken so far and the perspective of countries is going to be really helpful uh, to to move forward. Thank you, Maria. Um, I want to circle back to something that you touched on earlier, um, that being human rights considerations as they appear in the pact. Um, people seem to be increasingly concerned about the very real human dimension of environmental problems lately, um, with things like environmental justice and environmental racism becoming increasingly talked about in the field and also in society more broadly. In what ways does the pact seek to incorporate things like justice, equity, and human rights concerns into its fabric? So the principles included in the draft of the Global Pact are really essential in furthering environmental justice and equity, especially through this recognition of a right to a healthy environment, but also through other principles like intergenerational equity, procedural rights, including access to information, public participation, access to environmental justice, and education and training. I think these issues uh, have, become, have become increasingly more important as we see the environmental crisis is unfolding. And I think what the results that we are seeing right now with COVID-19 are really sort of a preview of what we can expect moving forward with climate change impacts and how everything is going to be much worse. And we can really see how environmental justice plays a big role in, in how people are affected by COVID-19. And it's the same thing with a series of other issues. Like if you look at how air pollution is uh, 
is increasing the, the health risks that people face and how access to water, which should be a basic human right, is actually not, not widely available to everyone. So you have um, people in, in different communities. I'm, I'm from Brazil, so it's something that's very dear to my heart, how people in the Brazilian slums don't really have access to water and can't really avoid the spread of COVID-19 uh, like, like they should. So the situation is getting more and uh, it's getting worse and worse because of this uh, lack of equity and of environmental justice that it's widespread. So the, the recognition of a right to a healthy environment, for example, would really help in, um, for the reasons that I mentioned before, uh, would really help this widespread adoption of environmental laws at the national level and implementation as well, which is really the most essential thing. So that environmental justice and equity could actually be uh, adopted in each country. I think uh, these are good points that Maria makes. And of course, one of the real values of her book is to provide uh, ongoing uh, diplomatic negotiations with a kind of a common reference point. Diplomats change, they're reassigned, the negotiations move from Nairobi to New York, and then now they've been in Switzerland or in, in Stockholm. Uh, there are parallel negotiations in other places. So having a common book lets us put together a shared uh, memory of these early negotiations for the pact. Uh, the other uh, element that's important is that the uh, the values in the pact uh, are being actively studied and negotiated by countries. One of the reasons the Secretary General's report was requested by the General Assembly, the Secretary General's report was requested by the General Assembly, is that not all diplomats have ever studied environmental law. And they wanted some guidance on what were the pacts and what were the agreed uh, elements. Um, the, uh, this common approach, if you will, uh, creates a basis for the ongoing negotiations. And after the Nairobi negotiations, we're now into a phase which is uh, guided by a General Assembly Resolution number 73-333, which sets up a timeline going to the year 2022, which is 50 years after the Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment, uh, uh, the very first UN meeting ever on the environment, and 30 years after the Earth Summit in 1992 in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, we need a new set of uh, uh, political uh, agreements on, on uh, stopping biodiversity degradation, stabilizing uh, the conditions uh, uh, around the world as our population grows, uh, coping with the uh, impacts of climate change. So we have about two years now of negotiations going forward uh, on the pact to see what will go into the political declaration, what will the basic uh, principles be that nations can rally around. Uh, and this book is, is a good uh, reference point for those negotiations. Thank you, Nick. Um, you talk a little bit there about the next few years. Um, as they pertain to the pact and what we can expect moving forward. Um, I, I guess to conclude, I'd just like to ask you both, uh, where are we now in terms of the development of an agreement and what is the outlook? 
Well, the, the, the negotiations uh, are tied to a number of parallel uh, uh, pathways. One is the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, or the SDGs. These are 17 goals that were agreed in 2015 uh, to guide us forward uh, 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 toward 2030 uh, to create a more sustainable economy, a more sustainable social life, which recognizes and implements uh, human rights around the world and now environmental rights. So we need the legal principles to go along with the SDGs and governments have not agreed to those yet. Uh, that's part of the ongoing negotiation. Uh, a lot will be determined by uh, whether or not the United States continues to have a, a unilateralist approach uh, as uh, President Trump has espoused, or whether we go back to being part of a multilateral approach, uh, rejoining the World Health Organization, uh, uh, UNESCO, and the other international agencies that try to build international cooperation uh, around uh, common shared values. We must come back to a, a more equitable and, and reasonable trade system. Uh, we've disrupted the trade uh, cooperation. So when multilateralism and global cooperation are uh, in decline, it's much harder to get nations to agree on general principles about anything, uh, including uh, the environment. And, and how we come up with a new uh, agenda between now and 2022 uh, is the very interesting problem that the negotiators uh, in the United Nations General Assembly are considering. Groups like the International Council of Environmental Law, ISIL, which has been very active in supporting the pact, uh, we will be continuing to work with nations on these issues. Uh, there are nations that are real leaders in this. Uh, one of them is France. France continues to push the European Union and itself quite hard. Uh, we have countries like Costa Rica that have decided that the global environmental protection uh, is one of the highest priorities for Costa Rica because they cannot save themselves if we don't save the rest of the natural systems of the planet. And uh, so there are quite a few countries that are coming to want a stronger regime for environmental stewardship. And I think that's the next phase of the PAC negotiations. Uh, uh, it's an open question how we will come out in 2022. Uh, what's not an open question is that the global environmental trends will continue to get worse as the UN uh, Global Environmental Outlook report number six shows. This last uh, April, uh, the Mauna Lea testing for carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases in the atmosphere reached its all-time high, uh, uh, a 410 parts per million monthly average, uh, went to a high of 414 parts per million. We've been talking about getting below 230 parts per million or down to 150 parts per million if we want to stabilize the global climate. We're so far away from that, that we cannot uh, hope to uh, attain those safe levels of global uh, uh, living uh, if we don't agree on a new global pact for the environment and start to uh, change our behavior patterns. I think what uh, Nick mentioned is very important about this need for cooperation right now, given the 
the worsening state of our environment. And I think the focus of the development of this agreement should really be on how, not on whether, to clarify principles of international environmental law with normative values to facilitate this consistency of interpretation and implementation in the context of sustainable development. So we're really, uh, Nick mentioned a couple of examples, and we're really seeing this uh, worsening state of the environment all over. Uh, I would use the fires in the Amazon rainforest as an example and how um, the lack of uh, of how a, a change in the national policies could really worse, worsen even more the, the state of the environment, which is what happened, what is happening right now in Brazil. Uh, it's a country that was doing very well in terms of uh, contributing to, to environmental protection, uh, both at the national and regional levels, but then a change in government really sort of uh, made this, uh, made the country as a whole take a, a several, several steps back. And uh, adopting something like the non-regression principle would really have helped in a situation like that and avoid this widespread uh, the widespread fires in the Amazon and the increase in emissions of in greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so we really should get to an agreement that has more substance that could have a real impact at the local level and it's not uh, just a, a declaration with empty words, so to speak. Well, thank you both again for joining us today to talk about the Global Pact for the Environment. Well, Dominic, it's been a pleasure to be uh, sharing our thoughts with you all. ELI has been really one of the world's great leaders in creating the understanding of how environmental law is good for uh, people, the planet, uh, the economy, the society. Uh, so working on these questions of uh, what are our ethics, the global norms for the environment that law has to take into account uh, is a high priority, and all of ELI's work is under uh, pin that, and we're grateful to you. Thank you. Yes, I, I, I echo Nick's thank, th thanks. Thank you very much, Dominique, and thank you to ELI in general. This has been a pleasure, a pleasure to work with ELI uh, in general to the publication of this book, and uh, it's really wonderful to spread the word word about the the development of the Global Pact, and hopefully we'll have some good news to share uh, in the future. Thank you both. And again, Maria's book, Gaps in International Environmental Law Toward a Global Pact for the Environment, was published in January 2020 with ELI Press. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at eli.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.